Hello and welcome to episode 59 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 10 years experience in Brazil and China. For this episode, I spoke to James Griffiths, the Asia correspondent for the Canadian newspaper The Globe and Mail. More about that interview in a moment, but first a bit about what's been going on with me for the month or so I've been on hiatus. Some big things have happened while I was gone. Most notably in October, I won the inaugural Covering Climate Now Award for my breaking news coverage of environmental destruction in Brazil, which included a lot on deforestation in the Amazon rainforest. For those that aren't familiar, Covering Climate Now is a consortium of hundreds of media publications aimed at promoting coverage of climate change. While it was their first time ever giving out the awards, the program was actually pretty slick. I'll throw up a link to the program on YouTube and earmark it to start at the part of the video that highlights my work. Check it out if you're interested. Then, more recently in November, I was in Glasgow for Reuters covering the UN climate summit known as COP26. COP is two weeks of working basically every waking hour as you chase around diplomats and try to get the latest news on negotiations over what are pretty arcane rules on how to implement the Paris Agreement on climate change. This year came with an added twist that we had to do nose swab COVID tests every morning while we were half asleep in order to get into the conference center. Despite those inconveniences and the huge amount of work, I love chasing around diplomats and other government officials in the hallways and trying to get them to talk especially when they don't want to talk to me. Suffice to say, covering the summit left little time for podcasting. My final piece of big news is that I'll be leaving Brasilia to move to Sao Paulo in just over a week. I'm going to be starting a new position with Reuters covering climate and environment globally. I'll still be writing about Brazil and the Amazon, but taking on a whole lot more. I'm excited for it and for a change of pace after living in Brasilia for four and a half years. So this means a couple things. First, this is most likely the last time I'll be recording in this storage room where I've done 95% of my recordings. It was a nice little studio that doubled as a room for my cat's litter box. Second, moving and starting a new job is a big adjustment. So this will be my last episode of 2021. I'll be back in early January with another episode. And at least to start, I will also be doing episodes only once a month rather than every two weeks as I've been doing now. If I get to the point where I'm able to go back to the old schedule, I will. But first, I have to find the right balance with my new job. Not to worry, though, the podcast will return. I've already recorded another episode for release next year. Okay, enough about me. The conversation you are about to hear is with James Griffiths, a correspondent for The Globe and Mail covering China. I say covering China rather than what city is in, because like many correspondents, James is in Hong Kong waiting on a visa that will allow him to move to the mainland. It's a situation many journalists, including many I know personally, find themselves in now amid COVID and China's tense political relationship with many Western countries. James will tell us about his career, which includes working at CNN for many years, where he covered the intense and sometimes violent Hong Kong protests. Beyond that, he is also the author of not one but two books, which is quite the accomplishment for a mid-career journalist. His first book is called The Great Firewall of China. How to Build and Control an Alternate Version of the Internet. As you might have guessed, it's about Chinese censorship of the internet. He'll tell us about how he went about reporting and writing that over the course of years, and during most of that time, he didn't even know if he'd be able to sell it. It turned out to be a hit and received widespread positive reviews from places like The Guardian, Foreign Policy, The Financial Times, and many others. It was originally published in 2019, 
but it's now out in paperback as of last month. Also just published last month is his second book, which is called Speak Not, Empire, Identity, and the Politics of Language. It's quite a different book from his first, exploring efforts to preserve minority languages under threat. He looks in depth at the languages Cantonese, Hawaiian, and his native Welsh. He'll tell us more about that in the interview. For both books, I highly recommend you go pick up a copy, and I'll post some links about the books in the podcast description. That's already a lot of information. The longer I go away between podcasts, it seems like the longer my introductions are. I'll leave it there and let James tell you more himself. So without further ado, here's my interview with James Griffiths, the Asia correspondent for The Globe and Mail. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, James. Thanks for having me. To warm up a little bit, if you could set the scene for us and let us know where you are physically and geographically and a little bit about what your past week of work has been like. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm in Hong Kong. I'm not in my usual environment. I'm currently about halfway through a 21-day quarantine. I was just in the UK. That was the first time I'd left Hong Kong in over two years due to the pandemic. And the reason I hadn't left for so long is because we have one of the world's strictest quarantines to come back to. So I'm about halfway through that. I've been working out of a pretty small hotel room for the past uh, two weeks already. That's mostly been dominated by, uh, so we're talking on October 2nd, and it's basically been dominated by the news of the two Michaels, the two Canadians who were held in China being released. So there's a lot of kind of scrambling as that news suddenly came out that the Huawei executive was released, and then that the two Michaels were on the way home as well. So lots of kind of scrambling and, and fairly late nights and early mornings around that news. Yeah, and I mean, that's especially big news for the Globe and Mail, which is in Canada. I mean, I haven't followed it super closely, but the Huawei executive who was released fairly quickly, the Canadians being held were being released. I mean, it was very clearly a swap, right? I mean, uh, it removed any doubt that one was tit for tat. (laughs) Yeah, they seem to give up on any pretense. So you, when Meng was, so we got the news that Meng was talking to the the court in New York, and and it seemed that a deal was about to be broken. And you know, I was speaking to my editors, and, and we were, they were like, oh, you know, this is Friday night or something. They were like, oh, you know, be on watch. We should see what the Chinese do next week with the Michaels. But we were still thinking it'd be like a month that there'd be some kind of show of a court procedure or I don't know something to, to make it look like it wasn't just a tit for tat swap, and yet. No, it was within hours they were on a plane out of China. And uh, yeah, seemingly Beijing said, let's just give up all pretense on this and just get rid of them. And I mean, so many publications don't have anyone in China right now. How did that news break? Who got it first and how? Justin Trudeau got it first, <laughs> the Prime Minister of Canada. Okay. So uh, until uh, until Trudeau announced that he was going to have a late night, very late night press conference, there was you know no idea that this was going to happen basically. Uh, and then he came out and and said they've just cleared Chinese airspace, and that was how everyone got the news at the same time. There wasn't much warning, you know. Even our kind of super connected people in Ottawa didn't get a heads up from their diplo sources or anything. Huh. Wow, big news. Hmm. And then, I guess to roll back the clock a bit, we like to get a sense of where our guests got their start and taking a very long time horizon. Could you tell us a little bit about where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and if anything, planted the seeds of interest in journalism early on? 
Yeah, uh, so despite working for a Canadian newspaper, I'm actually from the UK. I grew up in Annismorn in, in North Wales. And I've been thinking about whether I had any kind of interest in journalism. I, I think it's easy to kind of retroactively paint in a nice background for what you end up doing in your life to pretend that we all had this kind of linear path and we had interests and things. But I don't think I necessarily did until I was quite old. The only thing I can think of in terms of influence is, is there definitely were writers within the family and a knowledge of writers in the family, but not in a kind of aspirational way, just in a, I guess, exposure to it. So I have a very distant relative who was an investigative journalist in the US. And I remember uh, my parents had a collection of investigative journalism that included her piece. But, you know, she wasn't someone I ever met. She was dead before I was born and kind of, you know, so it wasn't really like there was a role model. And so I don't think I was necessarily aiming for journalism. When I went to university, I studied law at Liverpool, which is a city in the north of England. And about halfway through my degree, I kind of realized I didn't want to be a lawyer. This was, I started university in 2008. So the economy was crashing as I was studying and, and it just became harder and harder to become a lawyer. You basically really, really had to want to do it and you were going to take on a ton of extra debt post-graduation to do so. So I didn't, I realized I didn't want to do that. And I guess, I guess I kind of, at some point in that time, I, I developed an interest in, in doing journalism. I think a law degree is a very good preparation for it because you do similar types of stuff, doing research and building an argument and kind of a lot of writing pretty long essays and stuff like that. And between my second and third years at school, I went abroad to China and I lived in Suzhou, which is a city near Shanghai. So Liverpool runs a university, one of the first co-run universities in China, Xi'an Jiaotong Liverpool Dashui. And they arranged internships, which supposedly, you know, they were going to be related to our courses so I was told I'd be in like some legal department in this in this place and was nothing to do with my thing I was basically just a dog's body intern (laughs) but I got paid to do it and they paid for my flights so it was a free year in China essentially or not even a free year I mean I profited it was a profitable year in China and coming back from that I kind of were finishing my last year in university I, I was very much kind of had decided I wanted to do journalism after I graduated. I kind of moved in that direction or or positioned myself in that way. Had you done any journalism to that point? Uh, No, we don't. I think a handful of schools had papers, but but we don't really have that much of a legacy of student media in the UK. I think it has improved since I graduated. There's this collection of sites called The Tab, which kind of run a bunch of smaller publications in universities, but there really Mm -hmm. wasn't something when I was there. Yeah, I started kind of, I guess I just kind of had a personal blog. And then I can't remember if it was in my third year or or after I finished, after I graduated, I became a long distance digital intern for the Shanghaiist, which is a blog in Shanghai, kind of writing about China news and stuff like that for them from the UK. Sure. Yeah. Who ran that? Ken? Kenneth Kenneth Tan. Yeah. Kenneth Tan wonder what do you know where that guy is today i I think kenneth's gone back to singapore i ended up doing like you know it's basically working kind of full-time as a quote-unquote intern and he was paying me a small stipend and then he was like do you want to like do some editing as well and i and i said sure but you have to fly me to shanghai to do that we agreed to sort that out and i moved to shanghai in late 2012 and i 
kind of ended up uh, essentially I, I ran Shanghai for for a year or so. It was uh, let's say it, w- it was barely profitable then. It, it was kind of very much run on a shoestring. Kenneth had done a really great job keeping it alive all those years, but on a very much on a shoestring. And, and I think it's died a couple of deaths since then, unfortunately. Yeah. And it was based on like the Gothamist, right? Or at least the name was. I don't know that the actual things they wrote were this similar <laughs> to the Gothamist in any way. Yeah. So when it was started, it was it was literally part of the Gothamist network, um, oh. and and it still was when I was there. But we were the kind of most independent site, ran our own finances, ran our own editorial and stuff like that, and very much kind of when I joined. I think it already started pivoting towards a kind of China news model. And and I did that. I pushed that further and and we kind of became like what that era of Gorka was at the time, which was kind of a lot of kind of news delivered with a kind of wry style and a lot of kind of tabloidy stuff about China. And we did a lot more traffic (laughs) that way than we ever had Mm -hmm. covering Shanghai expat events. And, uh, let me see. So 2012, that would have been, I was in Shanghai 2011 to 2013. Don't think we ever crossed paths though. No, but um, we will have, yeah, we will have overlapped yeah. for a bit. Yeah. So you do that for a year and then what happens next? Um, so I'm sure you're also aware of a series of publications called That's Magazines in Shanghai, which or well, in across China. Yep. And they're these expat magazines, uh, monthlies and they didn't really have much for web presence at the time. They were basically just uploading PDFs of the magazines to their website. And they kind of approached me and said, look, do you want to come and basically come and build Shanghai for us on that and do a proper online platform? And they offered me, was it double my salary? It was a tiny, they were both tiny salaries, so it could have been double, but it, it's <laughs> not as generous as that sounds. But uh, previously I'd been living with my boss and earning very, very little, which is probably why we never met, because I did not go out very often. And I just kind of stayed at home and worked. Sure. Um, and this enabled me to at least move into my own apartment. Yeah. And, and you know, I had a, a kind of more responsibilities and we were able to build a little bit of a team there. So we built this, uh, you know, basically just a home for all of their reporting and, and also did a bunch of kind of like China wide content that they hadn't been doing previously. So they were, you'd had that's Beijing, that's Shanghai, that's PRD. They were very focused on their areas and we did more kind of day of news and general China news on, on the site. So I was there for not even quite a year. I don't think I, I think I did nine months, <laughs> but yeah. So after about nine months, I, I was just very aware that, that I kind of hit a ceiling of one of thing that, you know, no one was going to hire you to be a correspondent from an expat magazine that, that, you know, if I wanted to go more into serious reporting, I needed to move elsewhere that you know, places don't hire in China generally, unless you're moving from a senior position to another one. Right. So I had applied, I'd actually spoken to the South China Morning Post, the, the newspaper in Hong Kong, when I took the that's job, but I'd just taken a job and, and it wasn't, a, I felt bad about ditching them so you know i ditched them <laughs> nine months later which maybe isn't, <laughs> also isn't very good but so i applied for a what they now call the graduate traineeship at the post um that at the time it was called the cadet program which i think is an australian thing it's a <laughs> really horrible title for you know what are supposed to be like <laughs> But, you know, proper reporters, you, you know, and, and you sound and, and we all hated it. And we all kind of felt that it made you sound like an even more junior intern. But yeah, so essentially we were graduate trainees and I'd wanted to move to Hong Kong. So I'd in that year, I guess, between when I joined that and when I moved to Hong Kong, 
so this is, I moved to Hong Kong in 2014. So from kind of mid 2013 to 14, I met the woman who became my wife and, and she lived in Hong Kong. And so there was a kind of double desire, both professional and personal to move down here. So yeah, so I joined SCMP in mid 2014. And the reason why that's important is because two or three months later, the umbrella movement Occupy Central kicks off in 2014, just as I joined the paper. Sure. And did they have you covering that or what sort of stuff did they have you doing? Yeah. So the idea with the graduate traineeship, I think similar to what you guys did at Reuters, you were talking about in a previous episode was that you would rotate through the various desks and stuff. And I think I was on what was then called the online desk, which kind of shows how old fashioned the SMP still was in 2014. <laughs> but uh, I was on on that desk when the process kicked off and, and it, it became pretty much the number one story at the paper that everyone was covering. And so I did some reporting on the ground, written the early day, early days. And I think, I think Umbrella has been very much overshadowed by what happened in 2019 now, but it, it wasn't the kind of same level of intensity of process. We had a couple of very big protests at the beginning, and then we had these long-term kind of camps, occupations in various parts of the city. And so... I covered the big protests at the start, and then we would ran this live blog for like six months or something on the whole protests. And, you know, people would go out to the the various occupations and, and chat to people and see what was happening and, and cover the development. So it was very much kind of, I mean, I think I was at the Post for a year and a half, and the majority of my time was, was covering Occupy. I mean, certainly that was the biggest story, and it, and it felt like at the time that... <laughs> that that was the biggest story that there would be in Hong Kong, that this was, you know, I remember talking to people that moved to the city in 2015, that they were kind of like, oh, well, you know, we've missed the Hong Kong story now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. It seemed, it seemed like things had already taken a turn and it was kind of uh, wrapping up, but uh, yeah, things changed a lot from there. <laughs> they did. So did they rotate you around? What, what happens then? No, I, basically got stuck on or not stuck i mean i wanted to be on on the online desk i, I did some stuff with the culture department trying to revamp there so there, there was a desire in smp to to really evolve how they were working digitally they, they were a very old-fashioned paper when i joined they were aware of that and there, there were efforts underway to improve it you know there were things like that that some things wouldn't go online until they'd been published in the paper in which point they'd be fairly late and there were even bits of the paper that weren't being used online and stuff and that, that there was two separate cms's and, and it, it was a bit of a mess and this was also at the very end of well we didn't realize it at the time but at the very end of the quok ownership of the scmp before they sold to alibaba and you know in retrospect you can see that if they were shopping the paper it makes a lot of sense. You know, there was very little investment coming in. They were kind of pretty hands-off at that point and they, they were not caring for the paper in the way that it should have been. And so there wasn't much money to do everything, anything. And so a lot of these kind of grand plans to really transform it and make it digital first weren't really coming to fruition. But as someone who'd kind of worked in digital media for my pretty short career at that point, they were quite keen to have me to use me in that way. And, and so I became a an assistant editor and I was working for what was supposed to be the international edition of the paper, which they just launched, which was basically a homepage that was geared at international readers, but again, with kind of no extra money or budget or anything like that. So it was just like, 
oh, we'll tool the homepage a little bit differently. You know, we can't change any of the content, but we can write a couple of different headlines on this homepage and hopefully that will <laughs> make more readers come. And we also launched a, a technology channel. And so we did some more technology stories. There's an idea that that would bring in social readers. And, you know, it, it, it's a lot of stuff that they've done far, far more successfully in the years since in the wake of being bought by Alibaba and having a lot of money and resources to put into this. And, you know, they've done it very, very well now. It's just, you know, we were basically trying to do it, you know, on a real shoestring budget and without much more than the most kind of cursory support from the higher ups. So uh, what, what happens from there? How long do you stay there? Uh, I was at the post for about 18 months. I was pretty unhappy there. The post has a very kind of entrenched culture and can be very territorial. Mm -hmm. And as the people that were tasked with trying to change some of that culture, we were kind of caught between a lot of those territories. And so it was often very kind of political and unpleasant and it wasn't a very great place to work. And, you know, I think I was also young and maybe too vocal in some of my criticisms of things and stood on toes and, and, you know, didn't make myself any friends in certain areas. And, you know, I, I had lots of supportive people and lots of, you know, colleagues that I'm still friends with and stuff. And there were, there were definitely good sides about it, but it wasn't the best place to work. And, 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 you know, and I think a lot of that culture was to do with just the general stress of being in a place that is not getting very well supported by its owners and not getting the funding. And there was kind of a higher level of stress there and, and maybe also Occupy pushed the post that era of the post to a bit of a breaking point with the amount of work that people were doing and the amount of kind of huge long hours that everyone was doing thing. But anyway, uh, I wasn't particularly happy there. I was very aware that promotion within the post was always going to be very slow. I don't know if that's still the case, but they were a very old fashioned paper in that way that you really expect to kind of grind your way up over the course of years, you know, kind of waiting three, four, five years between promotions. And I was you know, kind of person in their like, mid-20s who, who just, you know, had the idea that, that you know, you have to get promoted every year or you have to, you know, keep going up and up and up. And I felt that that wasn't going to happen there. So I applied for a bunch of jobs. And a lot of this was basically just kind of get me out of, <laughs> get me out of the SEMP. And so the one that I was successful in getting was a producer role at CNN at the Hong Kong Bureau. So working on their website originally as a homepage producer and then as a kind of joint homepage, what we call digital producer, which was kind of doing reporting and writing for the website. I don't know that I've talked to anybody who's worked at CNN and I've looked at jobs there before and they list digital producer and things like that. And it seems like it's a completely different uh, format and structure than newspapers, wire services and things I'm more familiar with or or is it same just different name so i would compare it more to i mean it's been many things i, I think cnn also does not particularly know what they want it to be and it's really shifted i was there for six years and it shifted many times what a digital producer was supposed to be and what the <laughs> the digital newsroom was supposed to do so for a while there, there was this thing called the cnn wire that they had these kind of grand visions of competing with Reuters and AP and they like cancelled all of their subscriptions to these various wire services for text with the assumption that the CNN producers would backfill all of this and you know they did hire a bunch of people and, and so that was a, a lot of what we did was you know pretty similar to wire reporting for a very long time you know you were chasing day of news we were you know doing a lot of 
phone reporting, working in conjunction with the news gathering team, which mainly fed television. And again, it, I seem to kind of have a habit of picking organizations that are kind of midway through a transformation <laughs> because CNN is also through this time was moving from a TV news gathering operation with a digital appendage into something closer to a digital first operation with a TV channel. The kind of optimal version of their vision is, so if, if you look at uh, CNN politics, which is a vertical within CNN's US operation, they're much more integrated in that you have often have the same reporters working for the digital side and working for and you know being uh, correspondents on the television and stuff and you know there are extra people obviously and there are lots of editors and things like that but it's much more of a kind of cohesive vision whereas on the international side where I worked we did have a lot of kind of duplication and then also to a certain extent competition that you would have you know producers kind of reporting out the same thing at the same time or you might have a tv producer who's expected to turn a digital story on this but they're also expected to run a live wheel through this time and you know look after their correspondent doing six live shots and somehow write a story at that same time and so there was it wasn't a really cohesive vision and I think it's always been a struggle and on the digital side for us it became more and more I wouldn't say an independent thing but like a, a kind of dovetailing newsroom so when I started, we were very much taking reporting from the news gathering side and kind of putting it on the internet and doing a bit of extra stuff ourselves. And occasionally we would write features and things like that that we wanted to do. But by the time I left, we were much more doing, we would kind of do nearly all of the day's work, working with news gathering to kind of confirm the occasional stuff or if they were chasing something at the same time. And then you would have stuff come in from them extra on top, if that makes sense. So that it was... I don't know. It's, it, that sounds very confused, but it is somewhat because the model is slightly confused. But basically, by the time I left, I think it was pretty equivalent from what I've spoken to other people. It, it sounded pretty equivalent to like how a digital first place like BuzzFeed or Vice works that, you know, we would have our meetings and things. And the only difference is we were like BuzzFeed News, but we also had this giant TV channel in the same office with us that would occasionally just give us reporting and had a bunch of staff that we could rely on for extra work and help and well more often than not money as well so it was it was a strange place but and it did change a lot while i was there and i mean this sort of taken us through the hong kong protests right you were there at the 2019 ones if you were there for yeah six years did you say i was at cnf for six years so yeah so i, I joined in 2015 and i, I left uh, started this year and uh, what what was your experience like going through the protests? It was very, very intense. I mean, it was so. So by that point, I was a senior producer at CNN and I, and I was also kind of had had become the main Hong Kong reporter for the entire kind of bureau because between like 2014 and 2019, I was the only person who really cared so much about the Hong Kong story. I was the main person covering Hong Kong at that time because it just wasn't that big of a story. But I kind of maintained an interest and I kind of kept up contacts and had sources and, you know, was pushing this, pushing to do stories. And, and so I was very well positioned when this stuff happened in 2019. And, you know, I was very supported by the newsroom in terms of being able to play a prominent role in the coverage. 
And then so when it started, yeah, we were out. Um, so for the first kind of major protests, the, the peaceful ones, I mean, they, they were huge, but fairly similar to what we covered before. But when they started to get violent, so in one of the first days when there was supposed to be the second reading of the extradition bill, which is what uh, led to all the protests in the beginning. And so I was outside the parliament here and kind of waiting to see scuffles, essentially. We didn't think anything bigger was going to happen. There was a lot of people outside protesting, but we kind of expected scuffles between police as the lawmakers went into the building. And it was like 9, 8, 9 a.m. or something. Suddenly the protesters just dragged a bunch of barriers that the police had conveniently left all around Lechko. They dragged these barriers into the street, blockaded the street, and just took over the whole area. And it was completely shut down. And... By this point, we'd spun up a live blog. You know, this was the front of CNN TV. It was the front of CNN.com. We, we were covering it intensely. And we had a, a hotel room that we'd booked nearby to kind of cover this stuff because there had been protests leading up to it. And we needed somewhere to, because our office was a bit out of the way. And so, so I, I think I was out for three or four hours and I, and I went back to the hotel room to write a quick piece that was basically about, oh, it seems to be Occupy all over again. Here's, you know, the even the occupation camp is in the same place. One of the lawmakers had given a speech saying, you know, we said we'll be back. You know, here we are. We're back. We're ready to, to take it on again. So I filed that, went back outside. And basically, by the time I got outside, you could start seeing tear gas coming across and the police have been told, go and retake this. And it just became a completely different thing compared to anything we'd seen in Hong Kong. I was tear gas a few times in 2014, but there was never that extent of both resistance and, and also aggression from the police. You know, they were really doing repeated baton charges and drove the crowd out and just fired endless amount of tear gas. And so we just spent the rest of that day, essentially, just with protesters dodging police and being driven back from this area. And then that set the tone for the rest of the protests and only got more chaotic and increasingly more violent. From then, I was inside... Well, I was with protesters and then inside Lejko when it was stormed. So that's the parliament. They broke in and took it over. And again, seemed like it was going to be a, an occupation and, and that didn't happen. And they kind of cleared out voluntarily. And then the police cleared everyone off that was there. And then one of the most memorable events and traumatic for myself personally was I was in the airport. So the protesters had started blockading Hong Kong airport as a way to inflict economic damage. And so I was there and it was only a couple of days after the police had, for some reason, and, and I'll never really understand why they made this public, but they said that they were deploying undercover officers into the protests. And that's an invitation for crowds to turn on each other if they start to think there's undercover cops there. And that's exactly what started happening. And, and I was in the airport and this man had... Uh, I don't think it was ever even really established what he'd done that was suspicious, but he couldn't get people's suspicions away. Like he couldn't clear them, whether he was an undercover cop or he was just the wrong guy in the wrong time. He couldn't satisfy people's suspicions and, and it just became a mob around him and he was kind of held there. And it went on. I mean, it was probably six hours or so, I think. I was kind of standing next to this guy who was in an increasingly worse state. He was, you know, essentially had a panic attack at some point. It was incredibly hot and stuffy. There was kind of 10,000 odd people stuffed inside an airport terminal and it was hard to breathe. And this guy was surrounded by people yelling at him, trying to interrogate him. Occasionally, some people would try and come and negotiate and try and get him out. 
and this went on for hours and hours and hours and and there was a a distinct point in it where I genuinely thought I was going to watch this person die in front of me because he was collapsing and you know I think he passed out a few times and it wasn't getting better and eventually through like really prolonged negotiation between some of the protesters who realized this was a really bad situation and, and some of the other ones they managed to get him to a stretcher and even then it was like an hour after that to get stretcher out to the ambulance yeah so I was covering all of this at the, at the time and was was kind of tweeting it out and was sending in reports into the newsroom and then after this man was finding out, that was just as the police came in to try and clear the place. And so you had riot cops come in and tear gas everywhere. And so, yeah, that was a as a very intense thing. I had to take about, a, I think I took about a month off from frontline reporting after that. This was off the back of kind of covering this for three months beforehand. I just kind of sat in the office for a month after that because it, it was a really intense experience. Wow, Yeah. I can't even really imagine. I mean, that sort of stuff doesn't happen in the mainland, so I've never been in that (laughs) situation. But yeah, things took a turn for the more violent, and yeah, it it ended up with like the sieges of these universities and things like that. So so through that summer, basically, another thing that really burnt everyone out, I'm sure is the case across Hong Kong journalists, is that the the protests were always at the weekends. There was no occupation camp there was no central protest area they, they would do these kind of spontaneous or, or not so spontaneous protests that would but they'd always occur at the weekend and so you you know you work your normal shift and then you have to be on protest call on call all the time and and i was on that more often than not because i wanted to, to cover this and, and i was attached to this story and and so you're kind of working non-stop for seven days and and things like that but one time i was on a i was on a junk trip during the summer and i had to stay sober the whole day and I had a backpack with a laptop in it and a helmet on top of it and gas mask and stuff. And, and I was on this junk trip where everyone's getting getting drunk and swimming and, and, and I've got all of my kit. And then the moment we pulled back into the harbour, I just walked straight off and went into reporting a protest and was out for you know the next kind of six, seven hours covering this protest throughout the night. We basically just got used to always having kit with us because stuff just was happening so often. Wow. That's crazy. So, yeah, I guess then the next turn in your career is uh, joining the Globe and Mail, it sounds like, where you haven't been that long, but explain that move, I guess. Mm. So, yeah, so I've been at CNN for, for over five years and kind of I was very happy there and I was very, very well supported. And I kind of I, when I joined, like I said, it was a place to go to escape the SEMP. So I never imagined to spend five plus years there, six years, but I did because it was a very good place to work and it was very supportive and, and the digital side was really transforming and we were getting more and more support. We were becoming more integrated every year. But after I became a senior producer and, and I did kind of settle into that role and I, and I had a kind of more senior position in the newsroom, I did realize after a while that, that there wasn't really a pathway upwards for me any promotion was basically going to take me into editing and into management, neither of which I had much desire to do. I, I don't think I'm a very good editor. I'm not a natural, you know, I think good editors need to be able to, to help the writer achieve the story they want to do. And I think whenever I was editing people, I was a very, you know, heavy handed editor who would just kind of rewrite things that, that I thought were wrong rather than help the person <laughs> uh, get better. So, you know, it, it's for the best that I did not move into editing. 
And so I think this happens in a lot of places that sometimes the only way up is into management. And if you don't want to do that, you need to find a kind of sideways move or a diagonal move elsewhere. I haven't applied anywhere in the Globe and Mail. If my editors are listening, I have not applied for jobs while I've been at the Globe and Mail. Um, but everywhere else <laughs> I've worked, I've always applied for jobs. And I always tell people that you should always apply for jobs, even if you like your job, because it's good to keep those muscles turning. It's good to know that you're valued elsewhere and keep your CV up to date and stuff. I think it's always a good practice. And so and I'd interviewed for a few places while I was at CNN, but I'd turned jobs down or I dropped out of interview process because I decided that I wanted to stay where I was. But this Globe opportunity came up and I knew Nathan Vanderclip, who is my predecessor in Beijing. And I spoke to Nathan about it. The advert looked good and it was kind of the ideal foreign correspondent role that I'd always wanted that don't really exist in a lot of places, to be honest, anymore, you know, that you have a lot of newspapers that either don't have an extensive foreign correspondent staff or they are kind of trapping those staff in offices and, and getting them to essentially kind of match wire reporting a lot and putting a huge workload on them that prevents you from kind of doing that real value-add stuff that you should be doing as a correspondent. Whereas the Globe is very much the opposite of that, that they were very keen to have their correspondents do stuff that basically that they can't get off the wires. They pay for a number of wire services. So they have all of that day of reporting and they really want the correspondents to do investigations, do big stories, go out and develop sources, break news and stuff. And that was something we hadn't really ever been able to do at CNN because of the workload and the churn and the, the expectations. And so it was really, really attractive to me. And so on the Globe's profile pages that they have for all of their staff, they have like this little thing that says X years at the Globe. And if you look at it for all their foreign correspondents, they've all been there for almost a decade or a decade plus. You know, it's, it is a place that people stay at for a really long time. And I think that's always attractive when you're looking to join a place is that people really like it. And I spoke to Nathan about it. I spoke to a couple of other people. They spoke really highly of it. And then when I interviewed everything sounded great and they offered me the job so I took it <laughs> basically I was very sad to leave <laughs> CNN but yeah I was really excited to join the Globe and I am very happy that I, I took the role yeah I knew one or two of the Globe and Mail correspondents one of them must have been Nathan just a friend of a friend but uh do you know Mark before that Mark McKinnon yeah I think so I think so um and you guys have done great work or the Globe and Mail has done great work uh, in China. Yeah, Nathan did incredible stuff. I mean, Nathan was one of the early reporters covering Xinjiang and, and did a ton of really important, both early reporting on Xinjiang and then and since then has, has done a load of stuff. I, I joked when I took the job that he made it, you know, these are already big shoes to fill and he made them even bigger because he literally won like, it was like six awards or something in the transition period between him finishing and me starting, like in the month before I was supposed to take the job. So... <laughs> Yeah, wow. Um, and you're going to be in, based in Beijing? Uh, that's the theory. So I'm applying for a visa. So I joined the Globe in July and we've been applying since then. So I'm relatively new to the exiles, or well, not even really exiles because I never left Hong Kong. But like there's a group of journalists in Hong Kong waiting for visas to go to China. Su Lin, who was, who was on the podcast before, she's one of them. And Don Wyland at The Economist and a bunch of other people. And we're all in this kind of weird purgatory where some of the delay is definitely to do with covid but some of the delay is also probably to do with politics and we don't know how much that kind of breaks down and you know if the covid stuff goes away 
do the political stuff, do they still mean that people won't get visas or is things just going very slowly? And so it's very much a black box and we don't know. So for now, or since I took the job and for the foreseeable, I'm working in Hong Kong. And, you know, and I think it probably was something in my favor in getting the job at the Globe because I'm a permanent resident. I don't need a visa to work in Hong Kong. So having their correspondence stuck here rather than being stuck in like Toronto or having to sort out a visa for a reporter to kind of go be stuck in Hong Kong or Singapore or somewhere like that, it's much easier for them to just hire me and keep me where I am. Right. And yeah, I mean, so many people are in the same boat, basically. You need to get a new visa every time you change jobs. So even people who had been in the mainland like had to leave and got shut out. So yeah, it seems like, you know, things are increasingly relying on a very, very small core of uh, foreign journalists. You know, even the the wires have shrunk a lot, but at least they had a bigger footprint. So they still have, yeah. you know, bodies there. And I don't know what the current situation is, but I've heard like Someone at Bloomberg got arrested, a Chinese reporter, right? And so yeah, Hayes, yeah. The, the pressure is really on the foreign reporters to be the only ones who go out in the field and stuff like that, I know. So it's like, uh, I'd be curious to talk to somebody who's in the mainland right now. I can only imagine how much pressure and work is on their shoulders. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's always been this delicate situation of working with with Chinese staff and you know we had this in at CNN as well and even to a lesser extent at SEMP but that you have because of the legal situation in China where Chinese nationals can't work for a foreign media organization they're technically employed by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the news assistants and they're not supposed to do journalism but for a long time that was governed pretty liberally and they were able to do the great reporting that they'd always done they were able to do it under their own bylines and get the credits for it and stuff and that's just not the case anymore I mean you're in a horrible situation of both the local reporter and the media organization or, or the correspondent you're in this horrible situation where you kind of got to decide do we not credit this person in the way that they should be credited and they deserve to be credited? Or do we do that and risk them getting in what could be really, really serious trouble at this point? And you have to have a conversation about every single story, essentially, you know, whether this is something that we put a credit on or, or is this something that we don't. Right. So from Hong Kong, are you already technically covering mainland just from a distance? And how have you managed that, especially as somebody who hasn't been in the mainland in a long time? I understand, you know, a lot of publications have, you know, the New York Times, for example, I think the balance of their reporters are actually outside of China, but a lot of them mm -hmm. had been in China a long time. They could still, you know, kind of work the phones and things like that. How have you been going about it these past uh, six months or so? So I am covering China. I have been covering the kind of big stories from here doing kind of lots of phone reporting and uh, maybe kind of luckily a lot of those have been kind of big geopolitical stories which are you know you can do a lot of that reporting outside of China and speak to people and kind of you know work diplo sources and stuff like that you know I haven't been so much attempting to do the more kind of granular on the ground stuff because it just isn't possible over the phone and you're not going to recreate the good version of the story that the wires are going to be able to do with people on the ground. You know, that's why as a newspaper, you depend on these things you subscribe to. And and so I 
think if you know readers of the globe may have noticed that their hong kong coverage has has increased massively <laughs> since i was hired because you know this is reporting that i can do it, it's a city that i've covered for years and years and years and you know i'm able to do proper reporting here and so, so we've been doing a lot more hong kong features kind of interspersed with the big china stories so you know obviously i covered the two michaels i cover the geopolitical stuff i, I wrote about china taiwan conflict and kind of rising tensions there I wrote about Evergrande and things like this. So the big stories, but we're not trying to do the more interesting features that we would love to do, but that we can't do at a distance. We're also kind of digging into the stories that you that kind of you can't do in China anyway, that would be too difficult to report on the ground because of political or because of the security situation, and that you're going to be digging into via documents, via people that live in exile, various things like, like Xinjiang, religious um, suppression there. So there is stuff to do from a distance, and we're seeing a lot of great work being done from a distance in China, but it does make it a lot more difficult not being able to go there. Right. Well, hopefully the visas come through soon. I mean, I assume after COVID, even if they tighten up on visas, they're still going to have to let some journalists in. Our assumption has always been, and it is getting awfully close now, so we'll see, but that when the Beijing Olympics comes in February, that they'll decide they want to have some foreign cars there to cover it because it's, it's a big soft power play and you, you want to have it on the newspapers or, you know, around the, on the media or around the world. But, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's already October and we <laughs> haven't had any news about this. So let's see. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's going to be a strange Olympics. I can only imagine I mean, China's <laughs> been so shut down. Like, But for the Olympics, I mean, they'll have to open up a bit. Well, no, it's going to be the like worst bubble in the world. They, they've, they've kind of <laughs> announced it already. Anyone that goes to the Olympics is going to be sealed in this like really tight, tightly controlled bubble that you have to be in for the entirety of the Olympics. And it's going to be a nightmare. If I'm able to go cover it, it's not going to be fun. But at least I'll get to watch some sport. It's like practically extraterritorial for the, the duration of the Olympics. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, that takes us up to present, uh, more or less. So uh, after covering your biography, I usually like to ask a couple questions about stories. And I like to start with the story that got away, a story you had always wanted to do, but or not always, but uh, that you wanted to do. And for whatever reason, it didn't come off. You couldn't find the sources. You couldn't prove it. You couldn't convince an editor, whatever reason. Does anything come to mind? Yeah, so there isn't a specific story. but So basically, for the, for the two years that I was in Shanghai... Looking back, I do really regret that I uh, kind of didn't go out more, that I wasn't trying to go and find some stories. You know, I think I probably had a lot of justifications for it at the time. I mean, money was definitely one of them. Mm. I was also slightly concerned about the legal ambiguities of doing reporting in China, even though I was there at a much more permissive time than, than it would be now. But there was definitely stuff we were doing. You know, when I was working at this magazine, we were doing great cover stories on societal stuff, you know, not really political topics that would get anyone in trouble, but really good local reporting, really. And I think that was something that really dogged me through the early years of my career was this kind of idea that I needed permission to go and do the reporting that I like needed someone to say, okay, you're a real journalist now, you get to go and do this. You're allowed to go and ask mm -hmm. these questions. And so I kind of wasted the opportunity, I think, to do some really fun stories because I was waiting for someone to tell me I was allowed to go do them. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I certainly remember feeling that way, like 
well, I wouldn't do something unless I had an assignment. And, uh, mm. you know, in, in Beijing for two years with Reuters, I was the automotive correspondent. And, like, I could have pitched stories on other patches, but I just <laughs> never did. And uh, Yeah, I think it's I think it's difficult. Maybe people don't tell young reporters this, that people generally aren't going to complain if you go and do a bunch of extra work and come and give them some free content. <laughs> that, that, you know that, that you know as long as you haven't gone and done something illegal and gotten yourself in trouble your editors are probably going to be perfectly happy but yeah i mean i was always the same that, that if i didn't have an assignment you know i i would always kind of wish that i had these assignments and i didn't realize that for a lot of stuff i could just go and do it myself or i could go and try and take a stab at doing the type of story that i wanted to do and that's that's something that cnn to its credit was very supportive of and, and when I did realize that I did a bunch of stuff I just kind of went I'm going to go and do this story and I would just kind of tell my editor I'm going to go try do this and and see how it turns out and they were always very welcoming of that right okay so usually next I ask about a story you're proud of but for the purposes of this episode uh, you have a couple of books coming out so I'd, I'd like to talk about those for a bit so yeah, to, to start, I mean, obviously there are a lot of China books and your book, your first book chose to focus on the internet. Just walk us through how how you came up with the idea, why you decided to do it. You know, did you go out pitching people on it? Did it come to you? And tell us a bit about the book and the whole idea and how you went about it. Yeah, so I think I'd always covered censorship stories from when I was at Shanghai through SMP and stuff. I always liked to write about technology and, and well, or more on the kind of censorship side of, of tech, of freedom of speech online and of kind of these new platforms. When I first lived in China was as Weibo was really becoming this hugely important platform and there was a lot of excitement over what it could become, this new kind of public sphere for the Chinese internet. Soon after I joined CNN, I, I wrote this long piece about the state of Chinese internet censorship that had been what we call the great canon had been used to attack GitHub and some other censorship tools had been taken offline. And there was a real clampdown kind of implies, I think, a, a short term thing. But this is something that hasn't stopped. This was an escalating censorship as Xi Jinping was beginning. What we now see is this really long term escalation of control over various um, civil society. And so I was I was interested in this topic. I wrote this article and that was in late 2015. And then I went home for Christmas and was, I guess, I guess just kind of bored at, at home. And I had this idea that this article could become a book, you know, about the history of internet censorship. And I, and I think I did some Googling around and realized that there wasn't really a comprehensive history of the Great Firewall in China. And I found a draft book proposal online and, and it had a bunch of questions of, to try and help you lay out your idea for the book and so I filled that out and I worked on that and I think I probably spent six six months maybe even nine months working on the first proposal and, and still a very early idea and I wasn't totally sure how I would do it but I I went that I think I maybe wrote a, a couple of draft chapters and, and I found an agent in Hong Kong both because I felt that I wanted some help with pitching it and also I think I was too embarrassed to go straight to a publisher in case I just <laughs> got flat out rejected and so meeting with an agent was kind of a way of getting someone in the know to like let me know if this was a good at least a decent idea and that was potentially sellable and she was 
supportive and she she thought it was a good idea and and she helped me kind of craft the proposal but we didn't sell it for a couple of years but I basically continued reporting and writing it so from basically 2016 through the end of 2018 I was reporting and writing the book and we you know we sold it when it was relatively finished you know, I was just doing a lot of extra reporting and extra writing while I was doing my CNN job. I was able to, uh, sometimes with the knowledge of editors, sometimes without, kind of combine <laughs> reporting that I was doing for work with reporting for the book. And I kind of went in Beijing for a reporting trip one time and I, I packed in a bunch of extra reporting for the book while I was there and stuff. And I just gradually did this for a long time. And eventually we got a publisher, Zed, which was a, an independent publisher at the time. It's since been bought by Bloomsbury. And yeah, and, and it came out in 2019. And it was, I mean, it, it's difficult to talk about this without kind of sounding boastful, bow my own trumpet, but it was, it was very, very well received. I mean, kind of better received than I ever could have hoped for really with a first book about a oh, that's great. kind of from a, you know, completely unknown writer. And I, I don't think I was doing anything so clever at the time, but I, you know, I was lucky that I'd, picked a topic that was you know was very much in the zeitgeist and especially by the time it came out was at the forefront of a lot of concerns about China and because it's not just about censorship it's also about surveillance and and about propaganda overseas and stuff like this so basically how China uses the internet for its own purposes and so that I think got it a lot more coverage than it would have done maybe four or five years earlier. Sure yeah that's great congratulations I know you know a lot of people write books that I don't know, they obviously, you know, feel it's gratifying to do it, but, uh, you know, it doesn't, a lot of books don't, don't really hit, let's put it that way. So, <laughs> yeah, which, uh, yeah, so I think my second book, I, I do not expect to get anywhere near the coverage, it's about a much more niche topic. So my second book is about language politics and is about minority languages. I'm from Wales. I, I grew up speaking Welsh. And oh, wow. so the book is about Welsh, Cantonese and Hawaiian, mainly kind of the histories of the language communities in these places and also looking at some other languages and intertwines these stories to kind of tell a story about how this kind of global effort to protect minority languages and languages that have really been affected by colonialism and have been suppressed and have, are on the verge of dying out, how there is now a model for reviving them. And we're seeing efforts to revive them in, in lots and lots of countries. But yeah, I don't I don't expect this to get quite the level of attention that Great Fire will do. Right, right. I mean, yeah, there's just so much interest in, in China. I mean, as somebody who's now not in China, I mean, the level of interest is way different. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, the first book is coming out in paperback shortly. What, what Do you know what date? Yes, October 21st. The first book is out in paperback. And on the same day, Speak Not, my second book is out in hardback. Oh, great. Same day. And that those will be out by the time. I don't really know why they're the same day. <laughs> <laughs> those will be out, uh, yeah, well, well, before this podcast comes out, probably in November. But uh, yeah, cool. people should go check it out. And in terms of, I mean, is it the same publisher or how, was the process similar the yeah. second time? Yeah, I think speaking speak of it was a bit quicker because I knew what I was doing. And you really, especially if you're coming from a breaking news background of writing pretty short and, you know, quick stuff, you kind of have to rewire your brain to a certain extent to write at the kind of length that you're doing for books. You know, I have very early drafts of chapters that are like, 
1500 words long or something and you're like oh yeah this is not this is not feasible for a book you need to do a ton more reporting a ton more writing and you know really kind of set the scene and stuff so a lot of writing the first book was learning how to write it and and how to report it differently and things like that and obviously when I started the second one I didn't have to do that and so it, so it was so it's quicker and and it's with the same publisher my editor who has since left but but she was very keen on on it so they kind of bought it off a very hastily written proposal and they already had a it is a kind of strange deal where it's like a one and a half books deal where they had the first writer refusal on the second one so they were always kind of likely to be my first choice of publisher for the first speak not cool and i mean on the second one you got the idea because you grew up in wales but did you travel around did you go to hawaii and how long was this whole process? I mean, it sounds like the first one took several years, but how long to do the second one? Yeah, so the second one took about two years uh, to report and write. I mean, it's all, you know, simultaneous, basically. And so, again, it started with an article that I wrote because uh, after moving to Hong Kong and seeing the conversation around Cantonese here was very, very similar to kind of concerns around Welsh when I was growing up that, Cantonese, you know, is nowhere near endangered as millions of speakers around the world, but there is very much a concern in Hong Kong that it is being denuded by the government and that Mandarin Putonghua is being advanced in the same way that it has been in mainland China. So we've already seen it replace Cantonese as the main language spoken in Guangdong and other languages have been denuded in similar ways. And so seeing that parallel, which I never expected to exist between Wales and Hong Kong, I kind of dug into this and that kind of started me on this process. And yeah, so when I was reporting it, um, I did a bunch of reporting in Hong Kong. I went to Hawaii for a couple of weeks and was reporting in Hawaii. I went to Mauna Kea, where there is a long-term occupation there by um, indigenous Hawaiian people who are protesting against land usage and the abuse of the mountain for telescopes and that they are also very involved in preserving and promoting the, the Hawaiian language. So I was doing a bunch of reporting some I was able to do as part of my job again, and, and some I paid for myself to fly and went and did it during holidays and stuff. Though Hawaii is obviously not a bad place to go and do some reporting. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So that's great. I mean, do you think you will write more books? I mean, is it extremely taxing to try to do a book and work a day job? Or what, what are your plans going forward? When I finished the first one, I don't think I was looking at the dates earlier and I, and I don't think I really had that much of a break between them. I, some of that I think was just because I had an idea and, and, and I got very caught up in it. And also I, I did enjoy the process. It, it obviously is very, very intense and it, and it takes a lot of work, especially doing it at the same time as your job. And I kind of didn't have that much free time a lot during this period. And I was probably a fairly uh, less involved uh, husband than I should have been. And but I did enjoy it. I think because, again, when you're doing breaking news and when you're doing day of news, that that is often very, very rewarding, but it doesn't have that kind of tail on it, you know, and and, and sometimes that in itself can be very unrewarding that, you know, you feel like, you know, you do some story that you've been working on for weeks, like an investigation or something, you know, or you, you know, you just have a really intense breaking news week and then no one's, talking about it or thinking about it like 12 hours afterwards (laughs) right and that sometimes can be quite demoralizing you know and obviously the great thing about books is that that isn't the case you know the great firewall has is now gone into paperback this is kind of two years later it's 
you know, I still get kind of the occasional media requests about it. It feels like there is much more reward, I think, from doing it than there often is in doing daily journalism. But I also think it was it was to do with the type of reporting that I was doing at the time that I wasn't able to flex some of these muscles at that period in CNN. But since finishing Speak Not, so I finished it kind of at the end of last year, I was really moving into a kind of a wider role at CNN and being able to do much more in-depth reporting and feature reporting investigations, and then also moving to the globe. So I think that itch is being scratched to a certain extent, but I definitely do want to write another book at some point. And this could also be the fact that I just don't have a kind of concrete idea for what I want to do, that if maybe if if, if an idea takes me, then I'll get obsessed with it and be willing to (laughs) burn myself to the, you know, grind myself to the bone again of uh, writing a book at the same time as doing a full-time job. Sure. And yeah, just, I guess, one last question about the, I guess, the first book. I mean, what does a book being successful mean? I mean, were you getting good reaction among people in the know, like, you know, diplomats and, you know, China watchers and things like that? I mean, were you getting wider readership? And did it, like, change your career in any way to have a book under your belt? I mean, it's obviously a credibility statement, but, I mean, do you think you're viewed differently now as a journalist or anything like that? Um, so in terms of doing well, in terms of reception, I mean, I mean, the the, the most immediate thing obviously was reviews. You know, it did get reviewed well and kind of fairly widely, which is definitely very difficult for the first book. You know, this is, you know, people are inundated with books and they're generally going to take something from a more well-known publishing house or from a more well-known author. So that was really rewarding. And there was a lot of press attention around launch. And I did a bunch of events and stuff. I think in retrospect, it definitely did changed my career. And, and I, this was something that I was hoping for. I was hoping, for, you know, I kind of imagined it as like the journalist equivalent of doing a PhD, that is kind of a, a marker of capability or of kind of intention. In the first year or so after it came out, probably even the first two years, I don't know if I appreciated that. And there was definitely a period of kind of disappointment that my career hadn't like magically become everything that I ever wanted, you know, as soon as the book came out. But I definitely think it was valuable in the long run. And and I and I also think it just substantially improved me as a writer and as a reporter doing this, you know, having this huge project that took years. I think that does really change how you write and also kind of how you report, how you research and all, all this stuff that that put me in a stead to get my current job. And then obviously also having the book was definitely probably got me interviews that maybe I wouldn't have got before. Right. Yeah. Wow. Two books in that period of time. Big <laughs> congratulations. You know, not, not many people uh, can do that. So so that's great. And uh, again, they're coming out. Uh, they'll be out by the time this podcast comes out. People should go check it out. Anything else you want to say about them before we move on to the next section? Uh, no, but, I, but one thing I, I would say is that, you know, people shouldn't I guess people shouldn't overestimate how hard it is to write a book. You know, it's it's a lot of work, but I think it is valuable. And, and like I said, you know, I think as a journalist, it's good for your CV. It, it's good, like I said, it improves you as a writer, it improves you as a reporter. I think also good to have, if you're doing day of news, to have this long-term project to work on and stuff. And, you know, so I think if people have ideas for potential books, they shouldn't be shy about trying to explore that. And, 
you can take years to do this. It isn't something that you necessarily need to try and sell immediately. You can work on it for a long time and, you know, develop it and chase this story and, you know, chip away at it. And, and I think it will be rewarding in the long run. And I, I think it, like we were talking earlier about needing permission to do this stuff that I think maybe people that dream of writing a book someday, you know, think a publisher or an agent is going to appear and give them that contract out of nowhere. And whereas this probably is something you need to give yourself permission to do and, and chase. Yeah, that's certainly good advice. So yeah, next up is the lightning round. It's faster paced questions. Um, feel free to answer at whatever length you like. Do you feel ready? Yep. So the first question is, what is a publication that you think is a must read for people covering what you cover? So I'm not looking for the New York Times. I'm looking for if you're covering China or Hong Kong, what, you know, do you look at to stay in the know about that? Yeah, so I'm going to give a maybe somewhat controversial answer in that I'm going to say, I think it's something that I do read every single day and, and I do check every day is, is the Global Times, <laughs> uh, both in English English and Chinese. So, so Huancho is, uh, is, the, is the Chinese version and and just Chinese state media in general, that, that obviously, you know, there is a huge reliability and this is an incredibly politicized coverage. But, you know, we don't get many windows into official thinking in China. And, you know, trying to read the tea leaves of state media is often the best we can do for a lot of subjects. And often this is where we get pronouncements or some kind of explanation of something that's happened. So, for example, in, you know, the last week, Global Times, which for people that aren't familiar with China, is this very nationalist, state-run tabloid. They, I think one of the only accounts we've had of why the two Michaels were released on the Chinese side, so they published this thing claiming, citing insiders, that they were given medical bail and basically trying to say that this was nothing to do with the Meng Wanzhou case and stuff. So, you know, we obviously we don't take that as incredibly reliable, but it is an important context to have and to have at least some idea of what people close to the Chinese government are thinking or people, you know, who are more connected than most are thinking about this stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, kind of reading between the lines on some of these, uh, you know, state run <laughs> yeah. publications, you know, sometimes you wonder, yeah, they are they just acting as proxies for the government? And, and if you go in knowing that, I mean, you can glean some some useful information. Yeah. I and if you've covered China for a long time as well, you can also see things like there are certain ways of reading the propaganda apparatus as well. So if a story is the Xinhua, which is the state-run newswire, if it's a Xinhua copy everywhere, that is a sign that it is considered a very sensitive story and that an order has come down to only use Xinhua, not to try and do your own version of this story. Or it can also sometimes be useful to check state media and find hey, there's no reports on this topic or there's only like the most cursory reports on that topic and that can be revelatory or even newsworthy uh, by itself. Sure, yeah. What is a publication you read, listen to or watch for fun that isn't directly related to your job? Uh, so I have a couple of newsletters for this. One of them is Today in Tabs, which is written by Rusty Foster. It's actually in the like last kind of batch of newsletter craze kind of four or five years ago, and then it's come back as a substack. And it's basically a kind of, I guess it's kind of a newsletter about what's happening on the internet today with a very kind of strong bias in favor of kind of what journalists are talking about. And, and it has a lot of media gossip in it. And I think as journalists, we're all very, very guilty of wanting to read lots of gossip about our industry. And, and so I'm kind of 
definitely read that every day. And the other one is Vittles, uh, which is this London-based food newsletter or publication. It's run by Jonathan Nunn and it collects a lot of really, really great food writing and especially about kind of regional cuisine and regional food within Britain, both kind of as a national cuisine, which obviously is very insulted around the world, sometimes for good reason, but also the kind of modern British cuisine, which is a fusion of immigrant food and local food. And it's just incredibly well written and has great ideas about eating and about culture in the UK. Yeah, those are two good ones. I mean, today in tabs, I think Serena Dye, uh, who works for the San Francisco Chronicle, had told me about it. And I, I think, honestly, I edited it out of her episode because she had recommended like three things. And so sometimes, you know, for time, I've got to cut it down to one. Yeah. And uh, but <laughs> uh, I regretted because after I checked it out and I started reading it a lot, I think today in tabs yeah. is great. <laughs> um, so I'm glad to give it some love on the podcast. Um. What is the best journalistic article piece, again, whatever medium that you have consumed recently and recently can really be any time? So I'm going to, I'm going to name a specific piece, but it's because I also kind of want to talk about this genre of pieces. Uh, so there's a, a piece in The Guardian about Henry the vacuum cleaner, which is that you know, red vacuum cleaner that has eyes on it and a black top. It's <laughs> a very kind of human face. Do you know what I mean? I don't think I do, actually. Maybe I've been abroad too long. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, it, I think it, they definitely have it all over the world, but it's maybe more common in the UK. It's made by a British company. But why I think this piece is it's a great piece because it, it is a very interesting thing about this product or this brand that you see in the UK and that, that you're just used to seeing forever and, and that you kind of didn't know the story behind. But I think it's also typical of this type of reporting that The Guardian has been doing in their long reads vertical for a while and that I haven't necessarily seen other places do in this style, which is taking a really generic product and just doing a real deep dive on it that doesn't necessarily have a kind of defined news peg or a reason to exist, but they just go and report the hell out of kind of the topic. So, so a couple of things uh, they've done in the past year or so is was like there's a really great one about ice cubes and like, why <laughs> ice cubes are certain shapes, and how ice cubes have driven drink trends across like recent years and things like that. There was a great one about the Silicon Valley of turf. I think the headline was, which is about soccer pitches, and that there were <laughs> all these uh, British like pitch kind of mechanics almost who are hired and paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year by football clubs around the world to, you know, look after their pitch. There's one about hand dryers. You know, they just do these really great, well-reported, really interestingly written deep dives on stuff that I would never think of writing these articles. And I think most journalists would never think of writing them. And and yet they are sometimes some of the most interesting things to read about. Yeah, those all sound great. So the next question is, is there any particular subject matter you geek out about that isn't related to your job? Yeah, so I have a bizarre fascination that I can't necessarily explain (laughs) with reading about ancient texts, kind of particularly ancient biblical texts. So I'll read any headline about like the Dead Sea Scrolls or (laughs) some ancient piece of papyrus that they found. I don't know. I just find it really, really fascinating. One of the best books I've read in the last couple of years is called Veritas by Ariel Sabah, which is actually about a forgery of a supposed 
biblical era text about the, the gospel of Mary or the gospel of Jesus's wife rather. So yeah, I'm just really, really interested in that stuff. I don't have a great reason why, but uh, I just, I've read a bunch of books about it and yeah. That's very interesting. If you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? I think my answer for this is Pam Koloff, who is a reporter. She was at Texas Monthly for a long time and is now at ProPublica. She's done a lot of incredible reporting on criminal justice and on uh, wrongful convictions. Just this incredible, amazing article called The Innocent Man, which is about exactly what it says is about a man who is wrongfully convicted. The reason I'm hesitant to say that is that a lot of the stuff that she does is is very, very intense and I don't think it's necessarily the most fun of reporting <laughs> to do in the in the world mm-hmm. and I've done a couple of stories on um I did a big investigation on a wrongful conviction and I've done some kind of a lot of reporting about people in prisons and it, and it can be very grueling and and so I'm not necessarily sure as much as I hugely admire her I, I you know I hope she enjoys what she does and I hope it's very very rewarding but I, I also imagine it's it's very very intense to do this particular type of reporting as as your career Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. And then what is the coolest or weirdest or most interesting or really whatever situation or place your work has gotten you into kind of, you know, I can't believe this is my life type of moment? There were definitely those moments during the Hong Kong protests that we talked about a bit already. Um, But one thing that has always stuck out for me outside of Hong Kong is, is I was in Korea to cover the first peace conference between Moon Jae-in and and Kim Jong-un. And this was one that came before the first Trump-Kim summit. And I think ultimately, maybe those summits have not really panned out in terms of any real substantial change, and they might be undone in the years to come. But at the time, I remember being with a bunch of South Korean journalists and other international journalists, and there was this point where Moon Jae-in and, and Kim Jong-un shook hands across the DMZ in Panmunjom at that village where the soldiers look at each other. And and then Kim invited Moon to step into North Korea. And, and as he did, there was this kind of like involuntary gasp <laughs> from all of the all of the South Korean journalists. And, and, you know, and they genuinely all started cheering at this because it, and it, and it was just a way of I think reporters are often kind of detached from things, even when we're trying to be in the middle of a story and you felt that even being with a bunch of journalists, how impactful this moment was for Koreans to watch it. And then, you know, kind of had this emphasized to me afterwards, kind of doing reporting in Seoul and stuff. And But yeah, I just, I always think back to that that moment and it, and it was a real kind of, I think it's it's one of the first times I've really had a I'm watching history happen type moment. Wow. Yeah, that's quite a thing to see. That's crazy. What is one thing that most people don't know about you? You know, before my... Prior to my, my book coming out, you know, as a, as, a, as a journalist who works in the English language and, you know, speaks with a, with a very kind of English or, or even internationalized accent at this point, I don't think many people that I meet realize that I grew up as a kind of bilingual uh, Welsh speaker. And, you know, I still have a great attachment to my Welsh identity and, and to, to being from a family that, that traditionally spoke Welsh, though actually my father didn't and my grandfather didn't. We, but I went recently to my ancestral home and prior to when they moved to England and when the family lost their language and things like that. So yeah, it's a, yeah, I guess it's not a language that many people speak and and it's especially not a language that people come across maybe very much internationally, but it's something that probably really shaped who I am speaking, growing up speaking Welsh. So it was more your mother's side that 
was still Welsh speaking? Or... No, no, no. Both of my parents are, are from England, but my dad's side is a Welsh family. So it's Griffiths is, is a Welsh name. And my great grandfather was born in Wales, but I was kind of by coincidence more than they were kind of returning to Wales. But my parents moved to Wales before I was born and I was born there and grew up there and went to a Welsh school and grew up speaking the language. Oh, okay. So it came more from being in Wales than from your, your parents. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Do you find much occasion to speak it now? Uh, no, not really. And, and, it, and it is kind of pretty rusty. I do try to practice occasionally. I try to read things, but it, it's very kind of, I can read. Uh, I can, you know, I can read kind of properly in Welsh, but it's much more uh, work and a lot less enjoyable than it is in English. And occasionally I'll meet a Welsh person and we'll speak a bit of Welsh. Obviously, uh, reporting for the book, I did some reporting in Welsh and, and talked to a lot of Welsh speakers for that. But generally, living abroad, we only have like 3 million people in Wales and there's only about 800,000 Welsh speakers. So it, you know, it's, you're pretty unlikely to meet one around the world most of the time. Right, right. Well, that's very interesting. What's your most embarrassing journalism related story? Um, so I don't have a specific story, but I think what is embarrassing is that even like 10 years into my career, I am still perpetually racked with anxiety about making phone calls or mm -hmm. about speaking to people in the street. And, you know, I definitely thought that would be something that went away. And I think if anything, it's maybe got worse because I, as you kind of go on in your career you find excuses not to do these things and you're not like forced by an editor to go and do a bunch of vox pops or call 10 people I, I think some reporters are really good at the reporting side of it and they really enjoy reporting and some people really prefer writing and i'm definitely on on the latter side sure yeah and then what is your favorite film book tv or other media property about journalists and why and so I don't know if this is my absolute favorite, but I, since I just read it, it's a book by Kathy Gannon called I is for Infidel. She was the, or still is an AP correspondent, covered Afghanistan since 1988, uh, which is as long as I've been alive. She's been covering this country and it's this great book, which is a kind of history of Afghanistan from that period, essentially, through to whenever it came out, which is probably 2013, 14. And she was in the Taliban era, Afghanistan. She has a lot of Taliban sources that she's kept up with for years and years and years, covered Pakistan for a long time. And, it, and it's just a kind of testament to a pretty extraordinary reporter. And then also just the value of kind of foreign correspondence and of people becoming country experts and really digging in and developing these sources. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have kind of tried to read or inform themselves more about Afghanistan in the past few months. And this is a great book to do that, I think. Cool. Cool. I for infidel. I is for infidel. Yeah. And then the last question is qualifications aside. So setting aside talents and education and all that complete open field. If you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I think this is definitely setting aside talent then is, uh, <laughs> I, I think I've always had an interest in music. I've played various instruments over my life, uh, never very successfully and never to a very high standard. So I, I played trumpet and baritone and I played the drums for a while. And I, my wife bought me a guitar last year that I've been teaching myself to play. And, and, and so I've always had this kind of desire to be good at music. And, and I, I think I would love to have 
either had more natural ability that that it would have made that easier when I was younger or to have pursued it more seriously. And it's a very difficult career to have, but I would love to be able to play an instrument much better than I've ever been able. For sure. Okay. Well, uh, that's all my questions. I think this went great. Any last word before we wrap up? No. Yeah, it was great. I, I look forward to hearing it. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, James. Thanks, Jake. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with James Griffiths, the Asia correspondent for The Globe and Mail. I'll post links to some of the things James talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. I highly recommend you also go check out his books, The Great Firewall of China and Speak Not. If you like this episode of Foreign Correspondence, please subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. If everything goes according to plan, please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, January 2nd. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.